Good afternoon. It is good to be back. If you open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this, this afternoon. I'm grateful uh, to have a couple of weeks in a row again. It just seems like uh, in terms of schedule-wise, we haven't been able to do that. And so really it hasn't been since, I think, uh, the end of last year that we were uh, working our way passage by passage through First Peter. And I really wanted to have two weeks in a row before I picked it back up because as we were looking at uh, the passage that we're running into, we're coming to the Peter's instructions to husbands and wives. And I would have, and I prefer to preach on the instructions to the wives, which comes first, and then instructions to the husbands, which comes second. And so that's what we're going to be doing this afternoon, to be preaching through what Peter tells us about what it means to follow Christ. And... Uh, what the role is as we, uh, as believers in Christ, uh, seek to live faithfully in the world in which we are in. So I'd like to read the passage, and then we'll jump into the text. Here we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Well, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to look into this text this afternoon. I pray that your spirit would be along with your words to accomplish your work in your people. We're so thankful that we can gather together as, a, as a bo- the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, to consider what you have told us about how we ought to live. And we pray that we'd be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So sound booth, I don't see the PowerPoint up on that back screen, so I don't know where you're at. So if there's any way that could be up, that would be great. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, is interesting about today, and we were driving in and my wife showed me what she was texting her brother, because it's my wife's birthday today. And she said, yeah, Happy birthday. And so she said, driving to the church so Tim can preach about wives being submissive to their husbands on on my birthday. All right. So the timing couldn't be greater. And uh, and so so we have that. But, um, you know, one of the things that uh, birthdays do is make you think about a value. What what is valuable? And, you know, value is an interesting question, isn't it? Because value differs from person to person. There are some things that you and I might not find very valuable at all. But someone out there finds something exceptionally valuable. I just recently, I was cleaning out my drawer uh, from when I was a kid. And so I'm, I'm there, I'm chucking stuff left and right. But then I find this pack of cards. It's written in Japanese. 
And I think, boy, that's interesting. I wonder if this is anything. So I just, I, I put it aside. And then just this last week, I, I pulled out my phone and, and Google has this function where you can just scan over something and you can find uh, if people are selling that. And it turns out that this is the Pokemon cards back when they were called uh, Pocket Monsters. It's the first pack of cards that Pokemon ever came out with. And here I have an unopened pack. Well, now I've got a debate. Do I open the thing? <laughs> all right, well, in any case, we can all talk about that later. There, there's a lot of debate over what I should do with this pack of cards. But in any case, I, I've got that. And a lot of people hold a lot of value to it. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't even open the pack uh, back in 1996. But here I have it now. And of, of course, now it's valuable to me only because it's valuable to other people. Now, there are other things that people place value on. Uh, I have here up on the screen... If it's, it's not clicking through for some reason, if you go to the next slide, uh, actually the next one after that, if you could, uh, maybe you've seen this uh, grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> Anybody seen this grilled cheese sandwich before? All right. So some of you have seen this grilled cheese sandwich. And if you look at that grilled cheese sandwich and say, hey, look, there's the Virgin Mary. Well, that's what somebody said and then got $28,000 for this grilled cheese sandwich. I have been struggling to determine how I can make Mary's face on my grilled cheese sandwich. I haven't been successful yet, but it's worth 28000 if you do. By the way, if you're interested in seeing this sandwich, it's, it's uh, right now at a museum. And apparently, for the last 11 years, it has not even grown mold. And so clearly, this is a, this is a special grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, then the next slide shows us uh, somebody put together a guinea pig armor set. And somebody paid $2,400 for that to make sure that their guinea pig, in whatever circumstance it might find itself, is safe. All right? And then one more here. Uh, there's a cornflake in the shape of Illinois. <laughs> that sold on eBay for $1,350. So I would suggest the next time you pour your cornflakes, start looking through there. So this last week, I'm, I'm working with my wife, thinking about my wife's birthday coming up here on, on Sunday, and I'm thinking, what should I get her? And so I bought her this Cheeto in the shape of the United, in the United States. I mean, it's great. Okay, no, I didn't do that. And the reason I didn't do that was because even if I bought that for her, she would not value it, would she? What I want to do as a husband and one who loves her dearly is I want to find something that I think she's going to value. Today, we want to ask the question, what does God value? Because we love him. He first loved us. He's sacrificed himself for us. And so what we want to ask is, what does God value? And one of the things that Peter tells us in this text is what God values. And he says, wives, women, those who are my children, here are two things I value for those who are women. First, God values his daughters to follow the lead of their husbands. Second, and these are the two points for the sermon today. Second, God values his daughters developing their internal beauty. Developing their internal beauty. So let's take a look at each of those points one at a time, if we could. First, God values his daughters following the lead of their husbands. Notice with me in chapter 3, verse 1, here's what the text says. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your husbands. 
Now, you'll notice it begins with the word likewise. What does likewise refer back to? Because obviously there's a comparison that's being made. If you look back, and the last thing he talked about was slaves being subject to their masters. And that makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because I don't think Peter's trying to make a comparison between masters and slaves and husbands and wives. And why do I think that's not the case? Well, one reason is because you'll notice down in chapter 3, verse 7. He's just said, slaves be subject to your masters. And then he says, likewise, wives be subject to your husbands. And then he says in in verse 7, likewise, husbands. But you see, what he's not saying is, likewise, husbands, be subject to your wives. That's not something the scripture teaches. The reason the word likewise is there is because what he's highlighting for us is that he's giving to us the various means by which we have to engage in relationships. He's not saying that there's a correlation between slaves and masters and husbands and wives. But what he's saying is, here's a situation, a social situation. And here's what you ought to do in it. Likewise, here's another social situation. And here's how it ought to be. And likewise, here's another social situation. And here's how we ought to live in relation to that. So, let me put uh, at ease our minds here that Peter is not making that comparison. Rather, he's trying to draw out what does it look like to be a faithful Christian in various social situations. So, let's consider what it means to be a wife Married to a husband, and what does God value in that? He says this, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, one of the things we have to highlight here very clearly from a Christian standpoint, notice those last words, your own husbands. Scripture nowhere, in no case, suggests that women are to be subordinate or submissive to men in general. That is simply not the case. There is a certain social relationship of marriage in which this is to be uh, the case. So first, let's recognize that it's to your own husbands. Now, of course, when I say the word submit or be submissive, that language is quite challenging in our world today, is it not? We recognize, and and I bet even in a congregation like this, one in which we value the word of God, we're going to want to follow the word wherever it leads us. We still feel a little bit of that tension because we live in a culture in which that language is so charged that that we're a little uncomfortable with it. Now, I I think uh, one way of resolving this is to just try and develop what the scripture means by Submit to your husbands. I think it means follow the lead of your husbands. Because here's, I think, I think here's what we're afraid. Here's what I'm afraid happens when people read that text. They hear submit, like the word submit. You do, do what I tell you. And I just do not believe at all that that would be a biblical marriage at all. I can say this, I've never once said that word to my wife to say, you need to submit. I I just don't think that that's where the Lord calls me. God doesn't call me to make sure that my wife submits. God calls me to lead as a husband who loves his wife unconditionally, who gives himself significantly to my wife. 
Now, I want you to notice verse 7 of chapter 3, because this is the directions to the husbands. And we're going to get here next week. But notice what he says to the husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel. We'll talk about what that means later. But he says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What I want you to notice about that is what Peter is saying here is, Listen, husbands, recognize that your wife is a co-heir with you in the grace of life. And notice what he's suggesting to the husbands. He doesn't say to the husbands, husbands, remember, you're the leader. You you just go the direction you want to go and you you drag her along if you have to, because that's what you are. That's the position you've been given. Now, do you see what it says? It says, understand your wife, love her, care for her. And this is so vastly different than sometimes what you see. And I think this is the reason why we're somewhat uncomfortable with the word submit, because in our own cultural moment, I think it has connotations that I'm not sure are necessarily derived from Scripture. Now, we want to make sure to follow the Scripture. And and I'm not trying to denigrate exactly what Scripture says, but it's sort of like this. If someone were to ask me, are you a fundamentalist? I would want to know more about what they think about the word fundamentalist. Historically, that, that group of people is doctrinally where I would fall. But the word has kind of taken on new meaning today, hasn't it? And so, so I just don't throw it around. Now I have to say, well, what do you mean by that? And then we can have a discussion about it. And so if somebody came up to me and said, uh, must your wife submit to you? Then I would say, well, what do you mean by submit here? Because I think there are cultural factors that some people are bringing to bear on this word that I would like to just flesh out a little bit more of what you understand. So my way of, of understanding this, and I think what's, what Scripture is calling uh, godly women to, is to follow the lead of their husbands. Now, the question that I have up on the screen is this. Is submission merely a cultural artifact? And the reason I ask this question, and what I mean by it, is isn't submission something that used to happen in the past? The wife would follow the lead of the husband in the past, but, you know, we've gotten past that today. No longer are we required to do that in the world today. And some people might suggest this because right previous to this, Peter had just considered the relationship of masters and slaves. Well, of course, we don't do that anymore. So so maybe we've passed on from husbands and wives in relationships of, of, uh, of leading and following. But... The reason I'm going to suggest to you that this is not a cultural command is because the scriptures themselves ground this relationship all the way back in the book of Genesis. Think about how God made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And when he did so, he put man in just, I mean, think of the structure that God put. He created man, and he created the woman to be the helpmeet for the man. And the language there is really significant. What it means is that the man is by himself not completely 
uh, fulfilled. There's, he needs someone to come alongside to complete him. And so God makes woman to come alongside man. And the problem is in Genesis chapter 3, what we find is the fall of humanity. And if you follow the structure of what Genesis 3 tells us, it's a whole reversal of God's order. Because you have God at the top. And God has made man to lead his family. And he's made the wife to come alongside to fulfill her husband. And to them together fulfill the mandates that he's given to all of humanity. And underneath them are the, are the animals. But what happens with the fall? Who goes on top? It's a whole reversal because now Satan, in the form of an animal, comes and suggests a different way. And he presents it to the wife. And let me just simply say, even in that situation, where's Adam? He's standing next to her. She hands him the apple. He does not stand up in the leadership role that God had given to him. And so the, the serpent comes to the woman and the woman uh, leads in the man and they all are over top of God himself. And so uh, go back to that last slide because... This is the curse that God gives towards, there's a curse given to man, and that is that uh, his work will be laborious. The curse given to, to womankind is this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will give birth to children. And then notice this next phrase. You will want to control your husband. But he will dominate you. Now, that last, those last two phrases there come from the Net Bible. I think that's a, that's a good translation of what the passage is saying. It's saying this, that in the fall, here's the tension that families will feel. That the wife, that the woman will have a propensity. Not necessarily that it's always going to be this way, but there is a sinful propensity to usurp the role that God had given to mankind. There is a sinful propensity in the relationship of men. Because notice that last line, but he will dominate you. Now, the, the fall doesn't mean that uh, it's because of the fall that man dominates. No, this domination side of things is sin. He will sinfully seek to, lead, to rule over you. And so do you see how the very relationship of man and woman is then broken? God created in such a way that man and woman would together fulfill their end. The, the man leading in the home, the wife coming alongside, following his lead. But now there's going to be tension in the home because the man, instead of understanding, seeking to guide his wife, is going to rule over her with a, with a, with a fist of iron. And she is going to buck against the authority that God has placed within that marriage. So going all the way back to Genesis suggests to us that the leadership of the man in the home is not something that comes by means of the fall, but was God's original intention. The tension, God's original intention, but the tension that we feel within that is because we are, we are sinful beings. And as the curse indicates... There's going to be this tension even within the home. 
Now, the next slide then gives uh, one theologian's response to this as he notes that reversal of mankind. But there's one other reason. If you go to the next slide, what we find is that Ephesians chapter 5 is Paul's counterpart to Peter's statement here. In Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I don't want to make too much comment on this. This isn't the passage we're preaching. But I'd simply say two things about this. First, Paul is teaching the same idea that Peter was. Second, if we say that it's no longer the case that wives should follow the lead of their husbands, then I would say it's also no longer the case that the church needs to follow the lead of Christ. That's the analogy that's being presented here. But, in, but we know that that is not the case. And it is God's good favor, it is God's good plan that it be done this way. Now, that leads us to another question. Is submission itself Good, Or maybe I could ask it this way, because I think this is where a lot of the tension lies in our culture today. Does subordination indicate inequality? Does subordination indicate inequality? Now, our immediate thought, I think, in our hearts is yes. This is culturally what we're told today. That if in some sense you're subordinate to somebody else, then they're greater than you. But let me suggest a couple of things that indicate to us that this is just not the case. First, may I ask you, what what is the value of a human being? It is that we are created in the image of God. That's our value. If that's the value, who's made in the image of God? Is it man? Is it woman? Or is it man and woman? Notice Genesis 1.27. Here's, Here's the beginning of the Bible. And when he says, God created man in his own image, do you know how he defines that? He says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. And what does that mean? Male and female, he created them. You know, I'm convinced that the image of God is not fully formed in just the man. It is reflected in man and woman. God, of course, is neither male nor female, He presents himself in masculine categories, for sure. But I think the fullness of humanity, male and female together, show us who God is. And Genesis 1.27 indicates to us that man and woman are fully equal in worth. Because we are fully equally created in the image of God. And that's where our worth derives. But I think there's more to be said about why we're equal. Notice Peter himself, right? He, he says, uh, wives, be submissive to your husbands. But then once he gets down to chapter, or verse 7, he says, and husbands, don't you dare forget that your wife is a co-heir with you in the grace of life. So that when we get to the heavenly realm, and, and remember, what, what, is, what does Jesus himself say? The woman who's been married to seven men because they kept dying, what does he say about that marriage? They're, they're not given in marriage. There's, a, there's an equality of all the, that make it into the, the heavenly place. And there's an equality that derives from the fact that we are all sons and daughters of God. 
Let me mention one more argument for why subordination does not indicate inequality. Can you think of a relationship in which there is subordination, but clearly no inequality? Think about Jesus. Is Jesus subordinate to the Father? Do you remember his words in the garden? Lord, would you allow this to pass for me? But not what I will, but what you will. Why does he say that? It's because he is subordinate to the Father. So Jesus is subordinate to the Father. Let me ask this question then. Is he unequal with the Father? We got to be real careful there. <laughs> We're starting to walk into heretical, heretical doctrines when we begin to say that. No, he's, he's eternally equal with the Father. But within, the, but within the relationship of humanity, when he takes on human flesh, he takes on a subordinate role. And when he does, he doesn't lose equality. But he takes on a role. And this is what we have to understand. God has indicated to us that we are all sons and daughters of his. But there are certain rules he calls us to in which we find ourselves in subordinate roles. We find ourselves having to follow the lead of someone. And wives, when they enter into a marriage relationship, enter into one of those relationships. And I, when I joined my church, Inner City Baptist Church, I indicated that I would be in submission to the elders. Does that mean that the elders of my church are uh, greater than me in terms of uh, of, of, of role, perhaps, yes, but not in terms of, of essence. And this is where we have to understand the marriage relationship. God has ordained the relationship to work this way. And we might ask questions about, well, why couldn't it have worked some other way? And, you know, I'd simply say, I think any organization in which you have two heads, you're going to quickly find out why that's not going to work out very well. God has established a pattern within marriage. And here's what the text is telling us, that God desires godly women to follow that pattern, to follow the lead of their husbands. So if we ask the question, why? Well, that's part of the reason. But what's interesting to me is that here in this passage, Peter gives a second reason. He doesn't really give the first reason. He assumes that we know the first reason on the basis of Scripture as I just walked through it. But he actually gives a stated reason. Notice it with me in verse number one. He says, be submissive to your own husbands so that, here's the reason, here's the reason you should do this. So that even if some do not obey the word, what he's saying here is, Ladies, some of your husbands may not be believers. They don't obey the word. They're not submissive to the word. So you ought to be submissive to them so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The situation here is with an unbelieving husband, and, and, and it is a hard situation. It is quite difficult because if you think back to Roman culture, if you remember many, many, many weeks ago when we first started this study, we talked about the difficulty it was to be a 
believer in Rome because so many people were offering sacrifices to Caesar. The imperial cult was everywhere. The idea that you would be submissive to your husband was prevalent in the first century world. And one of the things that the Greek philosophers were quite clear about was that the wife had to submit to the gods of her husband. And here's, here's Plutarch. He's a Greek historian and philosopher. And this is what he says. A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it's proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. Now, I want you to notice that Plutarch is alive at the very time in which 1 Peter was written. This was the major Greek, Greek idea. So if you're a wife of one of these Greeks, Romans, he's going to expect you to be subordinate to him and to his, his gods. But what can you not be if you're a Christian? You can't sacrifice to Caesar. You can't sacrifice to these other gods. And it puts these women in a very difficult position. Now, what Peter says here is, I know you're in a hard spot, but there's hope. There's hope. How is there hope? He says, even if they don't obey the word of God, follow their lead. Be a godly example of what a wife should be, of what God created marriage to be. Be the best wife that you could possibly be so that they may be one without a word by your conduct. Now, a lot of, a lot of times people take this and they, they take from this the idea that you don't need to preach the word of God. You don't need to evangelize with words because sometimes our actions are enough. And in fact, some people use this uh, to say, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you ever heard something like that? And I've said it before, and maybe I've said it here. That seems to me to be about equivalent as saying, feed the poor, use food if necessary. <laughs> well, it kind of is necessary, isn't it? And in the same way, if you're going to preach the gospel, you've got to use words. I don't think what Peter here is saying is, listen, wives, never talk to your husbands about your faith. But just live righteously, and then you'll be okay. I think, I think the point is, he knows that she's a believer. He's already heard her say why he needs to believe in Christ. But I think what he's saying is, don't keep badgering. Don't keep speaking about it. Tell them the truth. And then live it. And live it well. Because do you remember what Peter has been saying since 12 to 13? He's been saying, here's what we have to do as believers. We've got to live among the lost community in such a way that they see our good works. And ultimately turn to Christ. And Peter here is saying, ladies, I can't promise you that your husband is going to believe. In fact, the verb form indicates that he can't promise that. He says they might be one without a word. But this language here of winning your husband is actually the language of investment. And I find that fascinating. Here's what he's saying. Invest in your husband's eternal state. 
by doing righteousness, by being the best wife you possibly can be, and keep investing, keep investing, keep investing, and one day, by God's grace, it may pay dividends. And praise be to God for that. And so, yes, our wives married, and and so our wives who are married to unbelieving husbands in a hard spot, yes, Peter recognizes that. But he holds out hope for them. And he suggests that they very well may win their husbands by their righteous conduct. So I mentioned that there were uh, two things that I wanted to say about godly women and how how God views a valuable godly woman. And the first is that they follow the leader of their husband. The second is that God values his daughters developing their internal beauty. Developing their internal beauty. Notice this with me in verse number three. He says, do not let your adorning be external. And then he lists what that means. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, very precious. Peter begins here with a statement Your adorning must not be external. What does he mean by external? Well, of course, he gives three examples. He says braided hair, gold jewelry, and then he says clothes. So we have to be careful here because uh, one uh, one of the people in the ABF that I teach talked about how her, how her church back in Romania required, in essence, it was a requirement that the ladies in the church not wear makeup. And the reason for that is because they didn't want their adorning to be external. And when we say adorning, it really is the idea of beautification. He's saying, don't let your beautification be external. Should it then be that we don't wear makeup? Well, I don't, but... Um, (laughs) should it be that Christians would say, we're not going to do that. We're not going to try and become externally beautiful. Well, he gives these three illustrations, braided hair. Should we not do braided hair? Gold jewelry. Should we not wear gold jewelry? Uh, Literally, the passage says, or the putting out of clothes. All right, so I think we should do that at least. And and a lot of newer translations put it this way, rather than just putting on a clothes, but putting on a fancy clothes. Because I think that's his point. And here's here's what Peter is saying. He's not saying, hey, listen, however you rolled out of bed, you should roll into church. Praise be to God, that's not the case, right? Here's what he's saying, though. Where are you putting your energies in life? And what do you care about? Because these three things, braided hair. Now, braided hair is probably, I I don't know anything about it, uh, other than to say that it probably takes a long time even now, I would guess, to braid your hair. But in the first century world, it was an extremely expensive thing. It was an ostentatious display of your wealth that you could do this. And it was really the higher up Roman women. And you can still see some busts of these these hairstyles that were just elaborate. The gold jewelry. Who had gold jewelry in that day? 
And not everybody, 90, 98%, 99% of people did not have gold jewelry. So what were you saying by wearing your gold jewelry? It was an ostentatious display of your wealth. Or how about the fancy clothes? Just think back in the first century world. I mean, today, you know, we go to our closets and we say, oh man, I've got nothing to wear. But you've got 45 shirts up there. In the first century world, you had maybe two tunics and you worked in that tunic and you, I mean, so you didn't have much. But if you were really wealthy, then you had some fancy clothes that you could wear on special occasions. And so what Peter's saying is, hey, listen, don't spend your time and energy and that sort of thing chasing after external beauty. Don't do it. And I would simply put it this way. It, it, it's, it's hard to apply in a modern context because clearly if you wore a gold necklace, nobody's looking over at you going, oh, how did they afford that? Right? Uh, they're saying, is that real? Uh, they, they might be asking that, but but that, that's not the question that people are asking anymore. So it's, it's somewhat hard to apply this today. And I would simply put it this way. This is how I've applied it. And by the way, this isn't just for the ladies. It's also for the men. What is your motivation for what you wear and how you appear? Uh, how much time do you spend on external beauty? And let me just say, you know, if, if it's a ridiculous amount of time, perhaps we're spending too much time on that. Peter's point, and I'm not going to draw any line in the sand. I'm not going to try and say this or that. I, I'm going to leave that to the Holy Spirit of God, applying it in whatever way he would want. But here's the question. Are we trying to draw attention to ourselves? And here's what Peter's saying. That's not how you should try and beautify yourself. Because that's not what's actually beautiful. Did you know that he goes on? I mean, I think it's interesting what he says here. Because he says, don't let your adorning be external. And then he lists them. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. You know why he talks about it as imperishable beauty? This, this other form of beauty? Because external beauty is perishable. External beauty is perishable. The most beautiful person will age. Isn't that right? Age is going to affect all of us. And you can try with all the surgeries and all that sort of thing, but everybody knows. You can try and, and, and beat the system. You can have the best jewelry. You can have the best clothes, but those things go out of style. It's going to fade. But there's something you could work on that's imperishable, that will never, ever fade. It's an investment in the life to come. And that's where Peter wants us to spend our time focusing. But no, so notice, I, I, though uh, I've spent some time at the first section of this, let your adorning, uh, don't let your adorning be external. Peter's point is to get past that to what your adorning should be. He says in verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. 
Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. What does he mean by hidden person of the heart? I don't, what he, I don't think what he means here is that this beauty is hidden from all sight. But I think he is saying this, that this beauty is initially hidden from sight. There's a type of beauty of a person, and you've seen it. I know you have. That you say that that is a beautiful person. And you are saying nothing about what they look like on the outside. You're just saying something about this person's heart is absolutely attractive. It is beautiful. It is godly. And what he's saying is, let that be your adorning. Work on that which is initially hidden, but will be known by all. And this is what scripture tells us about the final judgment of God. That all the externals will be wiped away. And we'll see people for how they really are. And some who might not have all of the out trappings of beauty in this world will be some of the most beautiful people we've ever seen. And they've not spent all their time trying to work on all the, all the external side of things, but they have developed an internal beauty that is eternally significant. Your adorning must be the hidden person of the heart. But what does this adorning or this beauty look like? He then describes it for us. He says, it's the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now you'll notice up on the screen that I've translated the word quiet here as the, as the word peaceful. It could be tranquil spirit. By the way, I'm convinced that neither of these are distinctively feminine traits. Jesus is described as gentle. And he ta- tells his disciples to be gentle. The tranquil spirit or the uh, non-combative spirit... Is something that scripture actually describes for all of believers. And what he's saying here is develop within your heart this, this gentleness, this, this tranquility. Uh, the tranquility is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, pray for the kings, pray for the president, pray for those in rulership over you, so that you could live a tranquil, peaceful, quiet life. That's this word. And so what he's saying is that this is what's, what's beautiful in God's sight. Notice again how it ends, which is in God's sight, very precious. It is in, in God's sight. As he looks at humanity, as he looks at his daughters, what does he say is beautiful? What does he see as valuable? And this is what he sees. Are they following the lead of their husbands as I've created them to do? Are they developing their internal beauty, the gentleness and tranquility for which I've designed them to be? And so these are the two characteristics. Now, he then notes in verses five and six that these two characteristics, the working on the internal beauty and then the following their husbands, is reflective of God's people in the past. Notice verse 5. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By the way, I think he's talking about the matriarchs. And the reason I think that is because he's about to mention Sarah, Abraham's wife. He's saying, God's people in the past, how did the godly women of the past act? He says, these are the two things they sought after. He says they used to adorn themselves. They used to beautify themselves in this way. First, by submitting to their husbands. 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And the reference there is simply saying that she followed the lead of Abraham and followed him in such a way that she said to him, what should we do? She followed him in that way. And then it says this, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what does it mean that you are her children? Well, we all know the kids song, Father Abraham, right? Uh, and, and the idea there is that there's additions to Father Abraham. He is the father of many nations. But you know what this passage is telling us? That we should add another verse to that song. And all the children's leaders are not, like, no, please, let's not add another verse to that song. But Mother Sarah, Mother Sarah, there's an example to be followed. And here's what, he, here's what he's saying. In many ways, we say the children of Abraham are the people of God. The daughters of Sarah are the people of God. Here's how you demonstrate your association with Christ. You do what the matriarchs did, which is precious in God's sight. You follow the lead of your husbands and you work on your internal beauty. This is how the holy women who used to do it, did it. And then he finishes with this statement. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Now that's a weird phrase. What, what does he mean? I think he's actually going back to the wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. Because remember how difficult of a situation that is. And he says, listen, submit to your husbands to the degree that you can. Because perhaps he's going to ask you to do something you can't do. So it's, it's not stated explicitly, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite clear that that's what Peter would say. But to the degree that you can't follow him and don't fear because God's in control. Don't fear anything that could frighten you. Don't do it because God's in control of your life. So here we stand. I hope I've invited next week, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I just want to be God's servant. I want to come up and preach what I believe the word of God is saying. And this is clearly what it's saying. It may be countercultural. And people in our culture would, would hear a message like this and say, say that that's chauvinistic, that that's patriarchal, that that's whatever else. But I just want to be biblical. And I think that many times our problems in our world are actually the result of not following what the scriptures teach. And here's what I'd say, guys, and we're, we're going we're gonna to address you next week. And I'm looking out here. I see you. So you better come next week. All right. Um, but here's what we're going to talk about next week. You have a responsibility to make your wife's following your lead the easiest thing she's ever done. You have a responsibility to do that. And here's where I think our culture sees so many problems. I think our husbands are failing too often. And so then it makes it so that they're, they're doing exactly what the scriptures warn, that they're ruling over instead of graciously leading. So next week we'll address that. But this week, I simply want to appeal to you, ladies, by the, by the very word of God. Would you do that which is valuable in God's sight? Would you follow the lead of your husbands? And would you 
work on, develop, spend your energies beautifying yourself because to the degree that you're doing these things, you should have confidence that you too are a daughter of Sarah, elect, chosen by God, changed by his Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you that even when we come to hard passages, we can have confidence because it's not my word. I'm thankful that as I stand up here, I don't have to just try and say, here's what I think you should do. I can say, thus says the Lord, and this is your word. So thank you for giving me the utterance today to proclaim. And I pray that you'd give your people confidence to follow it. In Jesus' name, amen.